This is really weird having this thing wired to my head. I'm usually holding a microphone, so I'll probably be speaking into my clicker. <laughs> you know, we pray about people being here this morning. In fact, just during prayer, we prayed about God bringing everybody that's supposed to be here this morning. But my favorite story of bringing somebody here has got to be Arts, because he thought he was speaking today. <laughs> So Art, there must be a really special word in, in today's message, you know, for just for you to get you to all that trouble of preparing your message one week ahead of time. <laughs> but uh, stay tuned, he will be here next week. Okay, so last week, um, Walter reminded us that we are royalty and, uh, and that we're princes. And this week, we're going to take it down a notch. I'm going to be uh, telling you that you're actually a sheep. <laughs> oh, how the mighty have fallen. <laughs> From the palace to the pasture. From the table to the turf. Feasting with fanfare to munching in the meadow. I think that's all I could come up with on the way to church here. <laughs> if you got any more, you know, let them, let them roll. Okay, so I have a clicker in my hand, and uh, Nathan, who knows me well, uh, has actually downloaded it into a PowerPoint so that I can use this without making it all disappear. <laughs> Those of you who do PowerPoint uh, with Google Drive, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. <clears throat> So we're going to be talking about Psalm 23. I subtitled it for myself, Fearless. And uh, we're going to get a little bit into why uh, Psalm 23 should inspire us to be fearless a little bit later. Now, I always like to know who the author was of whatever it is that I'm reading. And I must confess that when I was a brand new Christian, um, I really didn't have a whole lot of draw into the Psalms. I remember there was this uh, godly woman at my first church, Trinity Baptist, just a little ways over. And, uh, and she said to me, oh, yes, in the mornings, I just, I run to the Psalms. And I just couldn't relate because for me, I wanted the stories of, you know, Noah and uh, David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den and Gideon fighting, you know, with 300 men and defeating the Midianites. That's where it was at for me. But poetry, really? And um, at that point, I didn't really know just how much uh, the Psalms are a reflection of that inner reservoir of intimacy with God that Dan produced, particularly in David, those mighty exploits that I did so love. In fact, David, the warrior, penned approximately half of the Psalms. So we want to look at the very beginning a little bit at um, who David was. But before we do, we're going to read Psalm 23 together. So let's read it together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm just going to pray for us. Lord, I want to thank you for this amazing psalm. And Father, this morning, I want to ask that you would give us ears that hear, that you would give us hearts that are soft, that are responsive to the voice of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that every single one of us would be touched by a personal word from you through this psalm this morning. Holy Spirit, we welcome you and we give this time to you. Would you speak to us, Lord, and would you help us to hear you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're going to look at who was David. Now, not everything that I'm going to say is going to be up here. I'm just going to kind of summarize it up there. So first of all, David was a warrior and a leader. I'm going to just sort of summarize the main events that made David a warrior and a leader for you, just so that it's fresh in your mind. Remember David and Goliath. He was the one who went out before Israel's army, and even though he was just a young man, possibly, probably just a teenager, he volunteered to go fight the biggest champion of the enemy who had held Israel in utter chains of fear, and of course defeats him. He is the one about whom the girls sang as they danced. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. He was also the guy who went out and not only killed a hundred Philistines, we won't mention what else he did to them, but 200 for a bride price for the king's daughter. And he was also the one who had about him 400 men. It says in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, all those who were in distress, this is after Saul begins to persecute him, or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him out in the desert. Taking of towns, pursuit of Amalekites, um, When they took the the town of Ziklag from him, he took down, he took over the kingdom after Saul's death. David was a leader of men. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, it actually lists uh, David's conquests. In verse 13 of that chapter, it says, And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. In verse 14, it says, the Lord gave David victory everywhere he went, and he was king of Israel for 40 years. So there is no doubt that he knew about life and death conflicts, and that he was well familiar with leadership and responsibility. So what else was David? Let's find out. There we go. He was also a worshiper. Now, we kind of know that because we know that he wrote psalms. And we picture him, and I had this other picture up there, but I decided against it, and it was of David playing on his harp. But I wanted to give a picture of the abandon with which David worshipped. He wasn't just 
a half-hearted singer. He was, first of all, a skilled musician. Saul employed David to play the harp and bring relief from oppression. That meant that he stood out as somebody who was skillful in playing. He worshipped with abandon. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we read, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. So he was the one who wore, and he wasn't dancing naked, he was wearing a priestly garment that, uh, in a sense, made him like the priests, and Michal, his wife, despised him for it because he was laying aside his royal standard and took up the, the standing of a priest, which in her eyes was lesser. He instituted new forms of worship at the tabernacle by establishing musicians and prophetic singers. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, we read, David, together with the, command- get this, together with the commanders of the army... David, together with the commanders of the army, set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Haman, and Jedathan for the ministry of prophesying, accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. This is leaders of the army that are making decisions about how to do worship. And there were many of them, all under the supervision of King David. 1 Samuel 25 says, Asaph, Jedathan, and Haman were under the supervision of the king. Along with their relatives, all of them trained and skilled in music for the Lord, they numbered 288. He wrote half the Psalms in the Bible, 76 out of 150, according to one source. So he had intimacy with God. That's sort of the bottom line. Next. How do I do that? There we are. Okay. And thirdly, and this is going to lead us into our psalm, David was a shepherd. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, um, Jesse replies to Samuel after seven sons had paraded before him to see whether they were the ones that were suited to be or called to be king. And uh, Samuel says, do you have any other sons? And then Jesse says, well, they're still the youngest. And in some translations, that's actually translated like The meaning is like the runt, the youngest, the least important, Jesse answered. But he is tending the sheep. And that was commonly the job of the youngest son. Other sons had more important things to do. 1 Samuel 17, um, David himself says, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. This is him talking to Saul, saying, "I I can take on this Goliath. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Some kind of shepherd. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about what David understood, because this is what's going to enrich our understanding of uh, Psalm 23. David knows about shepherding, so he's not making up some pretty metaphor. He's talking about something that he was very familiar with, and that's really important. I don't personally like it when people compare things uh, to something else that they really have no familiarity with. 
But David's comparison comes from the heart. It comes from years of experience. And so we can take it, we can take it more seriously. We can dig a little bit deeper because it's not just pretty poetry. So a little bit about shepherding in the Middle East. Sheep were, in those days, absolutely the most important livestock. They were highly valued and prized for all that they provided for the people. Meat, milk, wool, horn, leather, and sacrifices. The Bible mentions sheep and shepherding over 400 times, from Abel to Abraham and Lot, all the way down through King David and to the shepherds who witnessed Jesus' birth or to whom the birth was announced. Many of these verses in the Bible pertain to God and his relationship with his people. There is something about the relationship between shepherd and sheep that is key uh, to helping us understand about God and his relationship with us. So in Genesis 48, it says, Jacob blessed Joseph and said, May the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, may he bless these boys. I think I may actually have these. Yeah, here they are. Okay. In Psalm 79, it says, So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. Psalm 80 Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Psalm 95, for he is our God and we are the the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Psalm 100, know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 119, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Isaiah 40, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Isaiah 53, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Luke 12, do not be afraid, little flock. This is Jesus speaking. For your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And if he wasn't clear enough there, he says very clearly in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So we hear about the relationship between shepherd and sheep throughout scripture. But it is through the mouth of David, who was a shepherd, that God first reveals the intimacy with himself that he makes available to his people, the sheep of his pasture. Now, Middle Eastern shepherding, unlike Western shepherding, is a full-time responsibility. The shepherd protects and finds food for the sheep by day and protects them from predators by night. In between, he deals with pests and injuries and sickness. He is close to the sheep day and night, and he knows each of them individually. The shepherd is the protector, the provider, the leader, the healer, the disciplinarian, and the close companion. The sheep are familiar with his voice and mannerisms, and they trust the shepherd. 
Now, David knew about shepherding because he was a shepherd. And in the process, he also knew the sheep. He knew a lot about sheep, actually. And I did some research on this. Now, here I go. I'm making comparisons to things that I really didn't have experience with. But bear with me. The people that I'm quoting actually did have experience with this. So we know from experienced shepherds that sheep are defenseless. Now put that up there. That's a little bit too far. Okay. So sheep are defenseless against wolves or lions and bears and wild dogs. They they can do nothing, and they are very vulnerable. Uh, especially at night, um, wolves and wild dogs, even nowadays, if, if sheep are not in a pen, they can be picked off one by one by wild dogs. Domesticated sheep stand almost no chance of survival in the wild. Secondly, hmm, that should say need, not ened. Um, they need help finding food and water. Middle Eastern lands are arid and have sparse water and pasture. And that means that the sheep have to be taken from one area of pasture to another. They don't just have this huge, you know, when we think of pasture, we think of a large enclosed fenced area where there's plenty of grass and the, and the sheep can just feed for however long they want to. Well, in Middle Eastern lands, that's not so. There's sparse areas of um of pasture. In fact, I just read yesterday that uh, there's approximately 2,400 shepherds left in Israel. And between them, they have about 520,000 sheep. And all of those sheep, they have decided not to graze because the, the pasture is so sparse. Instead, they, do, they have a zero grazing and full supplement diet. So they're entirely fed uh, on supplements. Um, because the pasturing is a lot of work, right? You have to take them from pasture to pasture. Um, Sheep will overgraze a pasture and contaminate it with their own dung if they are not moved along. They will basically eat until there's nothing left and then starve. So the shepherd is needed to keep them moving to new pasture. They also have a strong herding and following instinct. And that means that they will follow the herd without thinking. Um, They need a faithful and watchful shepherd because they will follow a bad leader to their own destruction. Now, I heard the story of a a herd of sheep in 2005. It was a large herd of sheep, over 15, well, about 1,500 sheep in Turkey. And one of the sheep, while the shepherds went off to have breakfast, these were not good shepherds. They went off to have breakfast and left the sheep because they were just, you know, eating peacefully. Well, one sheep got the idea that it would jump off the side of a cliff. And they all followed. 1,500 sheep jumped over a cliff. The first 450 died. And after that, it was soft and pillowy. And they bounced. <laughs> you know, and I thought, okay, is this an isolated incident? But it is not. Okay, Sheep can do the stupidest things. And the rest of them will follow frequently. So it's actually very essential that the, that the shepherd is there at all time and is watching over them. Um, yes, they're simple-minded and easily frightened. You know, most people, they just say they're stupid. 
because they really do the silliest things. Um, they're very easily frightened. And uh, sheep can actually die of fright and stress. So they need to hear the shepherd's voice calming them down. And this it, it's not any shepherd. It's their shepherd that will calm them down. They're familiar with his voice. And when he speaks to them, that will calm them down. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock. Sheep are also vulnerable to pests. Um, Parasitic pests such as the nasal fly can drive the sheep to severe self-harm. There have been cases where sheep that have uh, this this nasal fly burrows up through the nose and gives them incredible pain and irritation. And to relieve themselves, the sheep will run into a, a wall or a rock or a tree, whatever it can find, just to ram its head against it to try to get rid of that irritation. Um, the shepherd will actually, and I saw a picture of this, they will actually pour oil on the head of the sheep to keep the, uh, those kinds of parasites from being able to burrow in because they, the, the oil uh, repels them. Now, isn't it interesting that the Hebrew name for Satan is Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. Isn't that interesting? You know, all these, you know, oppressive things sometimes that bother us. There's a similarity in the way that sheep can be bothered by, uh, by parasites. Isn't that an interesting um, parallel? Sheep don't rest easily. Um, Philip Keller, uh, in, in his writing that's, uh, it's called... Uh, a shepherd on Psalm 23. He says that sheep can only rest if they're free from fear, friction, famine, and flies. And the, the shepherd is the one that makes sure of all of those things. So you can't actually expect that a sheep will simply lie down just because it's tired. The care and presence of the faithful shepherd assures them of all four. In Matthew 9:36, Jesus it says about Jesus when he saw the crowds he had compassion on them because they were quote harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And lastly, sheep have a tendency to wander and get lost. They ha- actually have no sense of direction. Did you know that? So when they get lost and they do tend to wander and they wander for no specific reason, even if there's food about. Sheep will sometimes wander. Um, so when they go off and get lost, they will not be able to find their way back. And a shepherd has to go after them and find them. That's why, you know, the parable of the lost sheep made a lot of sense to the people of the day when Jesus told them that story, that parable. In Psalm 119, we read, and we read this earlier, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Now, here's another thing. If they're cast down under the weight of their wool, that's actually a term with sheep. If they're cast down, they cannot get up by themselves. They will die and be vulnerable because they're vulnerable to predators unless they are found by the shepherd and set back upright because the weight of the wool is so huge at different times of the year. And in Psalm 42, 
the psalmist says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. God's going to make you upright again, soul. Jesus said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Okay, so now we've got a little bit of an understanding of what shepherding entailed and the nature of sheep that requires that they have a shepherd who's with them at all times who looks after all aspects of their well-being because he needs to protect them from wild animals. He needs to be there to keep them from wandering off. He needs to show them where the good food is and where the safe paths are. Now we're going to look at Psalm 23. And we're going to look at it verse by verse. And hopefully what we've just talked about is going to enrich our understanding of what um, that psalm actually says. So in verse 1, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. So what's David saying here? He's saying, first of all, he's establishing relationship with God. He's saying, the God of the universe is looking after me. And he's also saying, that I need looking after because I'm a sheep. Now, think about that for a minute because this is David, king of Israel, leader of many, many men, warrior. He certainly doesn't strike me as the kind of individual who, humanly speaking, would need to have somebody look after him. He wouldn't naturally, I wouldn't expect him to identify himself as a sheep in need of a shepherd. He'd be the strong, independent kind whom others will flock after. But David knew that in the grand scheme of things, he was a sheep and he needed to be looked after. What insight. Even though I slew Goliath, is what he seems to say, in the grand scheme of things, I am vulnerable and I need a shepherd. And this is true for all of us. The second thing he says is, I shall not want. Now, I know that in the NIV, it says, I shall lack no, I shall lack nothing. In my version, it says, I shall lack nothing. Um, But I really like the wording, I shall not want. And here's why. The old word want is better than lack nothing because it means that I will lack nothing that I have need of. When you are in want in the old sense, it means that there, is, there are necessities that you don't have, okay? When you are in want, you are missing some essentials of life. And what David is saying here is that we shall not be in want. That doesn't mean that we will have everything we desire, but it means that we will have everything that we need to fulfill God's purposes for us. There's a very big difference. It says, I have all that I need, and I trust that what I have is what I need. It's not so much a statement of how I will have no lack, but a statement of trust that God knows what I need and will help me through times of scarcity. You know, if we look at each other here in this room right now, we could, we could definitely see that we have all that we need. 
we are well supplied. In fact, we're abundantly well supplied. And so we could easily see that, yes, this is true for us. But guys, this is true for everybody in the world. There are powerful, strong, anointed, faithful, fervent Christians throughout the world who do not have all that their physical bodies would seem to need. And yet for them, as much as for us, this is true. And so it's got to be more than having everything that we want. It's got to be a statement of trust that what I have is what my shepherd knows that I need right now. And I'm going to choose not to desire other things. It's a decision as much as a declaration. I choose to trust that what I am given is what my heavenly father knows I need. And sometimes we need cod liver oil. Does anybody know what cod liver oil is? I personally have never taken cod liver oil, but I am told it tastes vile. But it's really good for you. There's a lot of things that I know I need that I really don't want. Would you agree with that? But God knows what we need. And when we declare, I shall not want, we're declaring, I trust that I'm going to have what I need from my heavenly father, from my shepherd, because he knows better, because I'm really just a sheep. And I'd like to bloat myself on clover, but he knows I need to have a few thistles because they're good for the digestion or whatever. I don't know. I'm not a shepherd. (laughs) I got behind, sorry. Okay, next. This is going to go faster in a little bit. Verse 2 says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, knowing what we talked about earlier about finding pasture, this means that God knows where the green pastures are. Much of Israel is arid, and throughout most of the year, pasture, finding pasture for sheep is an ongoing challenge. And sheep have to be kept moving. That means that there is a constant change of scenery. The shepherd takes the sheep always through different territory to get to the next rest and feeding ground. Nowhere is a permanent dwelling, only temporary rest. Sheep cannot stay long in the same place because they will overgraze a meadow. The shepherd keeps them moving. And we too need change. I know when things are ticking along well and, and I am comfortable, I don't want change. Change doesn't mean moving. Change just means change. Something changes. But there, change is good. We get the best feeding grounds when life brings change. God also knows how to make us lie down and rest. And some, for some of us, that's not easy. That's not voluntary even. But the important thing that I really gleaned from this is that God knows when we need change. And so when the next change comes in our life, uh, when the next change comes in my life, I want to be in that place of not complaining, but knowing, yay, I get new pasture. Because God's going to feed me supernaturally in that new place, in that new dependency on him that that new situation requires. That's what's going to feed me. That's what's going to draw me close into the into the into the feed of his word and of his presence. 
So I'm going to not complain. I'm going to really try not to complain when change happens. Okay. And God also leads me beside quiet waters. Sheep apparently only drink from still waters, not turbulent ones. And that means that the shepherd has to bring them to a place where the water is calm. Same is true for us. God knows where the still waters are in our life. And they will probably not come with a map. They will probably come at unexpected times because he's the shepherd. He knows where we're going. We're the sheep and we don't. Okay, so when those opportunities come for rest, something opens up before you and there's a time just to be quiet, connect with God, draw near to him so that you can drink in some still water when it comes. It's kind of exciting, you know, this life with God because you don't know what's coming. You don't know whether the next green pasture is just around the corner or whether it's a long ways down the road. God knows and he knows where the still water is where we can be refreshed. Following his leading will lead to food, water, and rest. We need to be close, close to the shepherd. Nope. I went too far. All right, verse 3 says, he restores my soul. In the NIV, it translates it, he refreshes my soul. But I actually really like restore because it speaks of bringing something back to its original form. It's made whole again. And I know I need that over and over. God, in his presence, he restores my soul He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. This church is the Christian's work. To follow his leading in paths of what is good and right. This is not slaving. This is simply following in a path that he has put before us. In Micah 6 verse 8 it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I read this story of a, a, a shepherd who had 150 sheep in some Middle Eastern country. And he has, was given the task of leading those sheep on a narrow path between two grain fields in full, like they were ripe for harvest. Now, if you know anything about livestock, the temptation of nibbling on those, on those uh, heads of grain on either side of you is tremendous. But the shepherd managed to get all 150 sheep down that narrow path with lush grain growing on either side, tempting them off, because he knew if, he, if the sheep go into the fields, he was going to have to pay the farmers for the damage that they caused. So he was highly motivated to keep them on the narrow path. And he did. All 150 sheep went on the narrow path. This is what the shepherd does. 
He's able to lead us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It basically just means daily doing the next good and right thing that he shows us. It doesn't mean that we have to have all of our life mapped out. Okay? And he gives us peace. And, you know, Caleb was sharing earlier about how he just felt peace about his future. And that peace comes from being close to the shepherd because you know he's going to know what's around the bend, where the next green pasture is. He knows the the right path, the next good thing that he wants me to be doing. And it's constantly for the purpose of glorifying his name. Sometimes we don't know um, where those paths are going to lead. In Psalm 77 verse 19, it says, Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. God is going to lead us, and sometimes it's going to be through places where we wouldn't expect him to lead us, and sometimes it's through tough places, but he is going to bring us through. And that's why we can say with David in verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Because we know that, you know, Psalm 23 is often read at funerals because it gives such a powerful, fearless outlook on death. But death can be a whole lot more than just the end of physical life. It can denote other losses, such as the loss of a job or the loss of health, the loss of a friendship, of hope, of vision, disappointments of any kind, pain, any frightening thing that causes fear or distress. Those things are a valley to us. But David says, I will fear no evil. And he knows that there are valleys that we have to go through in life. And he knows from his shepherding experience that there are dangerous places he has to take the sheep through. But he also knows, unlike the sheep, that he's got um, tools with which he's going to defend them, and he will lay down his life. He tells the story of how he fought the lion and the bear, and he, when the lion took the lamb, he grabbed it out of its mouth and ripped that lion apart. Okay? So he, lay, he was willing to lay down his life for the, shepherd, uh, for the sheep. And so he knows that when he goes through a valley, his shepherd, which is the the God of the universe is going to be with him and have his back in the same way, even better. So he knows that when I walk, like he knows there's going to be valleys. There's going to be dark places where where he's going to fear and, and have loss. And he has certainly experienced that in his life. But he is full of trust because he knows that his shepherd is going to look after him. And so he's able to say, I will fear no evil. And here's the key, for you are with me. Now, this is where the whole focus of the psalm changes. Up till now, David has been saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Um, He 
uh, restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now he's saying, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. And this is what happens when we walk through the valley. Until now, David talked of God. Now he talks to him. Until now, he declared his confidence in God to us. Now he declares it to God. And this place, the valley of the shadow, is where we find out if we are sheep of the shepherd. Because if we are, then we're going to start to talk to him because we know he is with us. This is actually a pretty amazing thing to know that the all-powerful God is with us. Francis Chan says, if you're a sheep and this shepherd has been with you all your life and he has guided you and protected you, you've seen him do some stuff, he says, don't you want to go through the valley? Don't, don't you want to go in the valley of the shadow of death just to see what he's going to do? Right. When we have that kind of confidence, then the valley isn't scary anymore. It becomes a place where God is going to reveal himself to us again as the one who is going to have our back, the one who is going to fight off the lion and the bear. I want to get to that place where when I experience a hardship, a disappointment, a loss, whatever life brings my way, where I can say, okay, God, what are you going to do? How are you going to glorify yourself in this? How are you going to deliver? Not are you going to deliver me, but how are you going to deliver me out of this? He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I think it's interesting that David talks about the rod and the staff right along with, I will fear no evil as I'm going through this dark valley because you're with me. And then he says, it's not your loving arms and your tender voice comforts me. It's your rod and your staff. I don't know if you've ever been disciplined by a parent, um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily say that the rod is a comforting thing. But David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And the reason he can say that is because he knows that the shepherd's rod has several purposes and they are good. The shepherd's rod and staff correct a wandering and disobedient sheep. They protect from predators because he's going to use that staff to beat them off. And they rescue when a sheep has fallen and can't climb up. He knows that the rod and staff are an expression of the shepherd's care for the sheep because he's been a shepherd. David may be referring to all three of these in these, in these verses. In the valley of the shadow the trial, the loss, the temptation, the danger. God may be correcting us or protecting us. And for sure, if we are in danger, he will rescue us. And what a tremendous comfort. David knew the heart of a good shepherd. And so he knew that the rod and staff 
are actually comforting. They are for good. They are not to harm, but to help. That's why he knew that even when the pain of the rod was felt, and I'm sure that that shepherd that was leading 150 sheep between those two fields probably had to use, you know, the rod on the occasional one, maybe even the one that, you know, where he would yank him back from, don't you go there. But he knew that this was God meaning it in love, and this is a comfort. There's a few verses, actually, that reinforce this. I don't know if I have them up there or not. Yeah, Psalm 94, it says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Psalm 119 says, I, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying that God allowed something and it was in his faithfulness. Okay, it is in your faithfulness that you have afflicted me. This speaks out of trust that God is in it for good. Remember Joseph saying to his brothers, you meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. We got to wait to see the, the, the outcome of the anguish. You know, just recently I was reading in Samuel um, where Hannah goes up and she's... Uh, and she's um, She's agonizing over not having a child. And she's, then it's many years of this. And then uh, she goes up and she prays for Samuel. And after, out of her agonizing prayer comes the birth of this prophet who was the greatest um, judge of Israel. And it occurred to me, and I think God showed me this for myself, that there are some agonies that God allows in our life to precipitate the kind of prayer that's going to bring about a much greater blessing than what we would have asked for. She just wanted a kid. But God wanted to give her the best and the most, the mightiest prophet and judge that Israel had had to deliver them out of the hand of the Philistines. Proverbs 3.11 says, My son, do not neglect, reject the discipline of the Lord, and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Now, I'm going to have to go quick here. You prepare a table before me. Now, this is a loaded verse, because it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Who ever heard of eating in the midst of their enemies? It's a picture of unbelievable confidence, the peace that passes understanding. Eating a meal with enemies around you, feasting in the midst of conflict. What an amazing picture David paints here. It means that no matter what the enemy may be throwing our way, God can cause us to feast in the midst of it, to feast in the field, so to speak. And this reminds me of an ancient covenant, actually, that's still held uh, to in many places in the Middle East. It's called the Threshold Covenant. When a guest, this is the nutshell version, when a guest has stepped over the threshold of a home, the host is completely responsible for the welfare of that guest to the point of defending them with his own life. So when it says, you prepare a table before me, in the presence of my enemies, it means we are in the presence, in the home, in the house of the Lord, and he is going to look after us. 
and we do not need to worry about the enemies without because we are here and he's going to feast us no matter what the situation outside is. Alexander McLaren says, this is our condition, always the foe, always the table. And we're going to find that in life, this is what it is. There's going to be conflicts. There's going to be difficulties. We are going to, we have spiritual enemies. And sometimes we feel like we're in that valley where we can't find our way out. But we can know that in the midst of this, God is preparing a table. We are in the house of the Lord. Therefore, he is responsible for our well-being. And he will take care of us as we surrender to him. He says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is also customary favor shown an honored guest, the anointing with oil. Jesus said to Simon, when I came into your house, you did not anoint me with oil, but this woman has not stopped kissing my feet and anointing my feet with, um, with perfume. This was a customary thing. And when David says this, you anoint my head with oil, he's, he's saying special favor is shown me. And this is for us as the sheep of the Lord. Special favor is shown us more than is reasonable. We are honored with abundance in the presence of the Lord. We are welcomed into his family. Now, the last thing that he says is, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Well, second last thing. The Hebrew word uh, is actually closer to pursue than follow. David knows that God is and will always be relentless in showing his love and mercy. He's going to pursue us. There is nothing to fear. Whatever comes our way, it will be covered in the goodness and love and mercy of our shepherd. Lamentations 3, verse 22 to 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the last thing that David tells us in this psalm, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Ultimately, However we get there, our eternity is in the presence of the Lord. But eternity does not mark the beginning of our life with God. It doesn't start when we die. If we have received Jesus Christ as Savior, the one through whom our sin is atoned for and who broke down the barrier between us and God, if we have chosen to follow him as our shepherd, the one who knows the way, then our intimacy with God can begin right here in this life. And this is sort of where I want to leave us. Charles Spurgeon said, While I'm here, I will be a child at home with my God. The whole world shall be his house to me. And when I ascend into the upper chamber, I shall not change my company, nor even change the house. I shall only go to dwell in the upper story of the house of the Lord forever. And the question that I want to leave you with is, are you his sheep? Are you experiencing that peace 
and that confidence that no matter what life throws at you, your shepherd's going to look after you. And I, I trust that you do. I trust that you do know him that way, that you are his sheep. If you aren't, this is a chance to make that decision because it's a wonderful life walking with Jesus and knowing him to be the shepherd of my soul, the shepherd of our souls that looks after every need, no matter what comes, I don't have to fear. I can be completely fearless because I know it's not me. It's not up to me to rescue myself. I have a shepherd who's going to look after me, and I trust in that. I'm going to pray together, and um, if there's something in your heart, I don't know all of you here, but if you don't know Jesus that way, if you've never said, yeah, I want to follow that shepherd, then make today that day. Come and talk to any one of us uh, up here or a friend that you might have come with, and, uh, and we will absolutely pray with you. But let's pray together and just uh, invite the Holy Spirit to do this in us, that we would know that confidence of walking with him every day. So, Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your word. I thank you for David. I thank you, Father, for this amazing psalm that has such depth. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us to trust you more. We want to live a life without fear and just surrender and follow closely to the shepherd because we know that you are the one who is our protector, our provider, our healer, our friend. You are everything that we need. All that we need is found in you. We want to trust you like that. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you refresh us with this truth? Would you remind us of this during this coming week? That when there are changes, when there are valleys, that we would call on your name and put our trust in you. And we thank you for this. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.